Now, if you're new to reading the Bible this morning, one of the key things that you need to understand about the the book that you have in your hands is that while the Bible does tell us uh, many different stories about people's lives and tells us about different periods of of history, at its heart, the purpose of, of the Bible is to reveal God. It is to make God known to you and to me. It is to to reveal to us his character, who he is, and and what he has done. We had a a really, uh, I think, great example of that in this series that we just ended last Sunday on the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, we read a lot about Esther's life and the incredible things that happened in her life. But the more we read, the more we realized this book isn't really about Esther at all. It's about God and his sovereignty. It's about the ability of God to, to have power over all things and to work all in all things in order to accomplish his purposes. That was what the book of Esther was mainly revealing to you and me. And so today as we come to this new book, the book of Galatians, which was a letter written to a specific group of churches uh, not long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what I want you to see is that the purpose of this book is to real that, reveal that not only is God sovereign and powerful like we read in the book of Esther, but this God has also extended to you and to me and to all of humanity amazing, incredible grace. It's what we find in this book of Galatians. Now that word grace is such an important biblical word to understand, and it's one of Paul who is writing the letter of Galatians. It's one of his favorite words to use. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, Paul uses this word grace over 100 times which is twice as many as all the other New Testament writers combined. So grace was an important concept for Paul to get across, and and you're going to see that play out in this book. For a moment, let's just look at chapter 1. I mean, you look at verse 3, and how does he start out? He says this, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you. You go down to verse 6, and look at it with me. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the what? grace of Christ. Go down to verse 15. It says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and, was, and who called me by his what? Grace. You see this same thing in chapter 2 and chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and then finally he ends in this way in chapter 6, the very last verse of this book. He says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now, what I want you to understand is that this word grace is is the thread that connects and permeates every piece of the book of Galatians. And so as we begin this study, I want to make sure at this first sermon that we have at least a beginner's understanding of what it means that God has grace for you. He has grace for me. A very simple definition of grace is, is this. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God's unmerited favor. In other words, it's it's God's love in action toward humanity when we were not deserving of his love. It is his unmerited favor toward us. The book of Galatians tells us a lot about what this grace looks like, but the greatest demonstration of God's grace, of his unmerited favor, came in the gospel. You say, what's the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that the salvation God provides is free. And that's going to be the main point this morning. The salvation God provides is free. It cannot be bought with your money. It cannot be bought by your efforts. It cannot be bought by anything that you bring to the table. I want you to hear this statement. 
God's pleasure in us and his approval of us is not based in our background or our achievements or our performance for him. Instead, it is based on his performance for us. That is grace. It is based in his performance, not ours. Now, I want you to really let that sink in today because I think for all of us, if we're very, very honest this morning, it's hard for us to believe that that can be true. We all have this very American belief that if, if something is of any worth, it has to cost us something if we are to receive it. Uh, for instance, uh, Rachel and I, this last summer, were at a conference with a group of friends, and after the last session of the night, we decided to go out and get dessert as a, as a group. We go to this nice restaurant, and the, the menu of desserts looked amazing, but we noticed on the side of the room there was this full-on buffet, and at the end of the buffet, they had many of the desserts that were also on the menu. Well, looking at that, we thought, well, we don't want just one dessert. We'd like to try a number of desserts. And so when our waitress came up, we, we asked her, how much would it be for us just to get the desserts on the buffet? Well, she looks at us and she said, oh, well, you can have them. They're, they're free. You can go get them anytime. We looked at her. We, we thought, well, no, she must not understand. Um, we didn't pay for the buffet. We just, we want to pay for the buffet so that we can get the desserts, but we just want the desserts. How much would that be? She said, oh, don't worry about it. It's free. You can go get desserts. Well, we became even more confused. So we, we went back to her. We said, this is like five minutes later. We talked about it for a while. She came back to take our order. We were like, well, you don't really understand. Uh, we, we are only getting dessert. And, and so if we were to go get the desserts and that's all we were to do, you're saying we can't pay for it. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you can just go get those desserts for free. She went, to, she went away. With 10 more minutes spent conversations. What do we do? We came to this restaurant. She's saying it's free. We just want the desserts. I mean, do we, we ended up paying for something else because it couldn't be free. We had to get fries or something. I don't remember what we bought. Well, friends, if, if it's that hard to believe that a buffet of desserts is free, how much harder is it for us to believe that salvation that God provides, that our approval before God, that our standing before God could really be at no expense to ourselves? that we couldn't in some way earn it, that we couldn't pay for it in some way, that we couldn't do something enough to earn God's grace. If you struggle to believe that, then you rightly understand the problem that is happening in the churches in Galatia. You see, the churches in Galatia, Paul, who's writing this letter, had started these churches, and, and yet this letter is different than every other letter that he writes to the churches in the New Testament. At the beginning of every other letter that Paul writes, he does a number of things. He first tells them who he is. He says, my name's Paul. I'm writing this letter. He tells them who he's writing it to. This is the church that he's to. But then always Ephesus or the church in Galatia or the church in these. So he tells who he's writing to. But then always in his other letters, he right after that gives a great word of thanks about the church that he's writing to. Or he prays for them in some way. But I want you to look at verse 6. He starts off by telling them, I am Paul, I'm writing this letter, I'm writing to the churches in Galatians. But in verse 6, does he give a word of thanks? Does he pray for the church in Galatia? No, this is what we see. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I am astonished. He cannot believe the reports that he's getting back about this group of believers that he had just spent time with. He had just proclaimed the gospel to them and they had received it. 
And yet here they are a short time later, and he says, already you are being now persuaded by people who are bringing another gospel, which in fact is not really a true gospel at all. How could you desert him talking about Christ? So this whole letter, this whole book that we know as Galatians is is Paul's urgent response to this situation that's happening in Galatia. They're following after a false gospel, a false set of teachings. So the question becomes, what is this false gospel? What were they tempted to believe? Well, thankfully, we have the book of Acts. And if you've never read the book of Acts, Acts gives us a historical summary of this whole period of the early days of Christianity. And in Acts chapter 15... It talks about how the gospel is going out. Many in this area, including the area of Galatia, are accepting the gospel. They're receiving it. But it says this, chapter 15, verse 1. It says, But some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is the heart of the teaching that had now brought the Galatians, to to confusion about the gospel. You see, this group is seen at other points in the New Testament, and they're, they're known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers had one basic teaching, and that was this, that, that yes, if you want to become saved, if you want to be saved from your sins, saved from an eternity, separated from God, yes, you need Christ, but you also need to be circumcised and live by all the Jewish regulations and the customs and the, the, the culture of that day. So their main thing was, you need Jesus, yes, but you need Jesus plus something else to be saved. Now, in this room, I don't think we have any uh, or any big group of self-proclaimed Judaizers, okay? I, I realize that. I didn't hear any of you in the lobby talking about circumcision or the right or wrong of that this morning. And yet, here's the thing. We are all susceptible to this belief that we need Jesus plus something else to truly experience God's love and his approval. We are all susceptible to that belief. It may not in our life be Jesus plus circumcision, but it very well may be Jesus plus this list of things I need to do and things I don't need to do in order to gain God's approval. Perhaps it is Jesus plus a certain political party for you to truly be a Christian. Maybe it's Jesus plus certain cultural preferences. We all are under this tendency to say we need Jesus plus something else in order to have God's approval. I found it interesting. Uh, my first time to visit a third world country, I was interacting with the believers in that city who had literally nothing. They, they did not have the clothing that Westerners have. They didn't have any of that. But I was amazed on Sunday morning, the pastor of that church was adamant as they met together that all the men had suits. Didn't matter anything else, but all the men in the church, if they were going to be pleasing, had to wear a suit on that Sunday morning, which I thought was so interesting. What I, what I realized is that, well, that's what clearly happened is that when the gospel came to these people, uh, somebody came with the gospel, plus you need to have some things of Western culture. These people didn't wear suits. That's not any part of their culture, but all of a sudden they had to have that, plus a suit. We are all, um, we are all susceptible to this belief that we need Jesus plus something else. We are secretly, if we don't admit it, we are secretly often lured into believing that in order to please him, in order to gain his approval, we must earn it. We must do certain actions in order to get God to be happy with us. It can be found in your inner thoughts when you think, if I just pray more, 
If I just study the Bible more, if I just do more good than I did bad this week, then when I'm sitting here, God's going to be more happy with me than he was last week. Or on those weeks that we fail to pray as much as we'd like, or we fail to read the Bible, we sit here and think, well, God can't be as happy as he was with me before. We have to earn God's approval. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, this belief is ingrained in us. In fact, if you think about other religions, all the other religions in many different ways teach this same principle. If you want to have connection to God or whatever supreme being they're putting forward, what do you have to do? Here's point A, point B, point C. You have to do the five pillars. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to cleanse yourself in these ways in order to have a connection with God. Well, friends, Paul, in the book of Galatians, comes and presents a very startling truth that separates Christianity from every other system of belief. And that startling truth is this. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. It's not based on your performance for him. The salvation he provides is free. It's entirely a work of grace on our behalf. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 50 years or you've been a Christian for five weeks or you're just exploring Christianity. This is the truth that you need to understand. Salvation is through grace alone. But let's dig a little bit deeper. How can God's grace be free? What does it mean that God's approval of us is based on his performance and not our own? Well, that's what Paul explores in these first 10 verses. In verse 3, I want you to look at it. He says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here you have God the Father and God the Son, and it says together they are the source of grace. So let's break that down. What does the Father do to give us grace? Well, what, what has he done for us? What performance are we trusting in when we say we're trusting in the work of God the Father and God the Son on our behalf? Well, the first thing you need to understand is this. God the Father has initiated our salvation. He has initiated our salvation, which means this. Before you ever sought God, before you were even born, God was at work to bring about your salvation. If you're sitting in this room and you're a Christian, God is the one who initiated that salvation. We know this because at the end of verse 4, it's talking about our rescue from sin and from death, our, our deliverance from those things. But it says what? It says all of this was done according to the will of our God and Father. What this means is that God, by his own will, has designed salvation to be completely dependent on his grace, not on our works. Paul, the writer of this letter, had come to experience this in a very personal way. He fully understood that he was not seeking after God, that he wasn't pursuing God, but that instead God pursued him. And so he shares his story in verse 13. He's explaining how he became a follower of Jesus, and he says these words. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. If you've never read the Bible, uh, you need to understand this Paul who is writing the letter, he was not always in love with Jesus. He didn't always have a relationship with Jesus. In fact, Paul hated Jesus. 
He thought Christians were, were heretics and lunatics that, that had to be stopped. And so he sought to persecute them and kill him. And so what Paul is making clear in this passage is he's saying, I was not pursuing Jesus. I was not open to the gospel. I was perfectly fine relying on my own religious works. I was one of the best Pharisees that you could ever find. I was moral. I was doing all the right things. But then listen to the transition, verse 15. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his what? Grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I want you to stop and think about what he's saying. He's giving you his own personal testimony. And here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, I got to the point where I was dissatisfied with Judaism. And so I went and sought something else. It's not what he's saying. He says, no, I was intensely pursuing moralism. I was intensely pursuing a life that was completely living up to God's standard. I was in no way seeking the gospel. But friends, here's what he says. But the gospel sought me. It sought me out. Friends, we may not have this exact testimony of of stopping on the road to Damascus and seeing the resurrected Christ, but we all have that same story. If you're in this room and you say, I have put my trust in Christ. We were not pursuing God. We were saved by a God who chose us before the creation of the world. We were saved by a heavenly father who pursued us even when we were not pursuing him. He initiated our salvation. He is the one that made our salvation possible through his work alone. All why? Because he loved us. It says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. What that means is that none of us in this room are here based on our own merit. We aren't here because in some way we've earned being here. We are here because God's mercy and his grace came running to us. And it changed us and it brought us into relationship with himself. God the Father initiated our salvation. So what did the Son do? It said, God, the grace from God the Father and his son. So what does the son do? Well, if God initiated this great plan of salvation, what did Jesus do? He accomplished our salvation. Again, look at verse 3. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who what? Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the evil present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I would encourage you, if you've got a pen or a pencil, underline that phrase in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. You see, the centerpiece of God the Father's plan to bring back humanity into relationship with him, because our sin, from Adam and Eve all to, to each one of us, we've all sinned. And the result of that is that we are separated from God. We, we cannot get over that chasm on our own. It's too deep. It's too wide. We can't do that. And so his centerpiece of bringing us back into relationship with himself was Jesus. And what does it say about Jesus? It says, number one, that he gave himself for our sins. And this is so important, friends, because here's what that means. Just because I say that our salvation is free, I do not mean that it comes cheaply. Just because it is free to us, we cannot earn it, we can't do anything, it does not mean it's cheap. No, there had to be a price that was paid to secure our salvation. Here's the problem, we couldn't pay it. 
because of our sin, we couldn't cleanse ourselves of our sins. We couldn't make enough payment to get rid of our sin. But Jesus could. And that's why he says he gave himself for us. That word for means on behalf of. It means that Jesus took our place on the cross. He took the punishment for sin that you and I deserve. He gave himself for us. He took upon himself the wrath of God, the separation from God that we deserve on the cross. Having lived a sinless life, he was the perfect sacrifice that was able to take away the sins of the world. But this had a purpose. What does his salvation do? It not only uh, is for us, but what does it say? To deliver us from the present evil age. I love that language of of to deliver us. This is language of rescue. Uh, You go back to the book of Acts, and it talks about how the people of God had been rescued from their oppression in Egypt, how they had been rescued from their slavery. That's the same word that's used here. In Acts, it's used of of, of, uh, uh, Peter when he is rescued out of that prison. It's used of Paul when he's rescued from being stoned to death. It's a word that means to be delivered. And yet it's the only time in Scripture that it's used of our salvation. You find it right here. Jesus has rescued us. Now you ask, what does he rest? The present evil age is the present evil age. What you need to understand about that word is that the present evil age is the description, it's the phrase that the Bible uses to talk about a world that is in brokenness, a world that stands in opposition toward God. So he says, the work of Jesus delivered us from the present evil age. You say, well, we're still here. It didn't deliver me. I'm I'm still in this present world. It's not saying that you're delivered from it. It means that you were delivered from the power of it. When Jesus and his grace comes and it consumes your life, it frees you from the things of this world. You no longer have to live for the things that this world says to live for. You no longer have to love the things the world loves. You no longer have to think like the world thinks. It says that Christ frees us from that. It frees us from death. It frees us from sin. It frees us from the the present evil world, and it's all a work of grace. Uh, We get a full description of this in Ephesians chapter 2. And so I'm going to read. It's going to be on the on the screen, but I want you to see the work of Christ and how it plays out in our salvation. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it says you, it's talking about all of us. Saying you were spiritually dead in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the thing. Christianity has incredible hope, but it begins with understanding that we are worse off than we could have ever imagined. It says you were dead in your sins. You had no hope. You were just living under the, this present evil world. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's the main point this morning. We cannot and we will not and we did not save ourselves. We, if we are Christians in this room, have been rescued. 
Again, this is what separates Jesus from every other religious figure in history. You think about it. I want you to imagine with me this morning that, that after service, you decide to go out for a swim at Ocean Beach. Wouldn't be very wise because it's freezing cold, but say you do that, okay? You go out into the ocean. You can't swim very well, so you, you go out and you think, okay, I'm good. But all of a sudden, you get sucked out by the undercurrent. You're being pulled out and you're trying to swim. You're, you're yelling, help, help, help. You're being taken under the waves in that moment. Now, in that moment, do you want somebody from the shore to, to look at you and to, and to throw you a manual about how to swim? Is that going to be any help in that moment? Absolutely not. And yet that's what every other religion does. That's what we try to do when we're trying to earn God's salvation. We think if I can just do these things, if you just follow this teaching and do this and do this and do this, then you can learn how to swim. What makes Christianity so amazing, friends, is that Jesus did not give us a way to get to himself. No, Jesus jumped into the water and gave his life so that we could be brought to the shore. He perished so that we could live. And friends, that is why Jesus is not just our teacher. He is not just a moral example. Jesus is our hero. We were dead. We had no hope. And yet Jesus rescued us. God the Father initiated our salvation. And then his son, whom he sent, came and he accomplished our salvation. Our salvation is not of our own works. It is through grace. And that is the message that Paul wants to remind us of this morning. It's why why Paul wants to protect this message. In verses 8 and 9, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. He says, Did you not hear me the first time? Verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one received, let him be accursed. You see, Paul understands something. He understands that if we add just just a small smidgen of our own personal effort to salvation, that we contaminate the whole thing. It would be like me coming to you with a cup of water, a pure drinking glass of water, and right before I give it to you, I just put a little drip of poison in. Are you going to drink that? No. That one little drip contaminates the whole thing, and that's what Paul says about the gospel. If we think in any way that we need Jesus plus something else, it is no true gospel at all because it's not good news. It doesn't matter how good you are. You cannot be good enough to earn God's approval. His standard is too high. It is completely holy. It's completely perfect. You cannot earn it. But the news of the gospel is this. Jesus has earned it on your behalf. He lived the sinless life that you could not live, and then he went to the cross and he perished on the cross, taking on himself your sin so that you could have eternal life. Friends, my question for you is very simple this morning. Have you received this good news? This good news that salvation cannot be earned by you, but it has already been provided from you by the plan of the Father, by the accomplishment of the Son. Do you realize this morning that apart from the work of Jesus, you are drowning spiritually? You have no hope of swimming to shore on your own. You need to be rescued. The chasm is too deep. It's too wide. Your sin has created that chasm. You can't get past it on your own. The good news this morning is that he has done everything necessary for your rescue. This morning, why would you continue to try to strive or I would imagine there are some of you in this room that come in this room this morning and you think this. You think, well, 
Well, Ryan, I want to turn to God. I, I really do. I, I'm feeling this, and I, I've desired this for a long time, but let me just get a little bit more clean. Let me do just a little bit more cleaning, and then, I, then I'll really give myself to God, friend. You can clean today. You can clean tomorrow. You can clean every other day. But, friend, that stain of your sin is way too deep. It cannot be cleaned by you. It has to be cleaned from someone outside of you. And the only one that's able to clean that sin is Jesus Christ. Would you trust in him this morning? Would you allow him to rescue you this morning? Perhaps you're here and you're a Christian. I would imagine there are many of you in this room that are Christians. You have trusted in in God's work, trusted in the cross of Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. I think for many of us who are Christians, we think in this way. God's grace was enough for my salvation, but it's not enough for my day-to-day living. Yes, God approved of me. Yes, he forgave me of my sins. But now I got to keep earning it. I got to live in a certain way in order to gain his approval this week and then the next week and the next week. Let me just tell you, I have walked that road and it is a road that will rob you of the joy of your salvation. The good news of the gospel is that his grace is sufficient every day of our lives. You say, well, Ryan, if, if we have his grace, isn't that risky? Yes, it is risky. You say, wouldn't that just push people to do whatever they want? Not if they've truly received the grace of Christ. Because here's the thing, if we realize how much we need Christ, what are we going to do? We're going to cling to him every single day of our lives. We're going to worship him. We're going to desire him. We don't pray. We don't read the Bible, all these things, in order to gain his approval. Because we've been given his approval, we think, I want to grow in intimacy with my Savior. All of a sudden, these things, that became, our burdens become life. And this is what happens when we walk with Christ. No matter where you are spiritually this morning, take heart. If you are to trust in Christ and to submit to Christ and to cling to Christ, you can know this morning that you are approved by God, that you're accepted by him, and you will get to enjoy him for all of eternity. This is the gospel message, and it is available to every single one of you in this room. It's available to those of you who came in striving and striving and striving, trying to be religious, trying to be good. This gospel message of what Jesus has accomplished is available to you. It is available to those of you who have done terrible things that you're not proud of. It is available to you this morning. His grace is sufficient, but it means that you must truly trust in him. You must walk with him. You must submit your life to him. Will you receive this good news today?